Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Randy Bach. Today is December uh, 16, uh, 2022, and I'm honored, uh, genuinely honored, to have Dr. Aaron Cariotti with me today. He, he is one of the bravest um, men out there. Um, I, it may not show right here. Uh, he doesn't have his, his armor and, and his uh, spear and so forth with him, as any good warrior uh, should, uh, but he has been fighting uh, the, the war essentially uh, for ideas and for not just ideas, not just his ideas, but for uh, having a, the open ability to have dialogue, uh, both in medicine, in society, and in, in science, which is often misinterpreted as dogma, which it's, it's not. So um, he has uh, he has suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune, but I don't like to call it that because I, I think he's resilient enough to have you know found the opposite, the the, the silver lining in certain clouds. So. Um, I'm going to let him describe what those are. I think they're going to be a little bit surprising to you to find out uh, where we stand these days in terms of open debate. Now, maybe it's not surprising. Maybe it shouldn't be surprising. Uh, I think, anyway. So, Dr. Cariotti, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what's been new and different with you in the last year or two? Yeah. So, thanks, Randy. It's great, great to be here having this conversation with you. And I guess I could start my own story just about a year ago, where at that time this time last year, I had spent 15 years, really the entirety of my career as an academic physician at the University of California, Irvine. So my specialty in medicine is psychiatry. I spent about half my time in the department of psychiatry as a professor in the School of Medicine, teaching, uh, doing clinical work, seeing patients, supervising residents on psychiatric related work. The other half of my time was spent doing medical ethics. So. I was the director of the medical ethics program at UC Irvine. I chaired the ethics committee at the hospital. I chaired the ethics committee also at the Department of State Psychiatric Hospitals in California. And I was humming along in my academic career, pursuing both of those loves, medicine and specifically mental health and psychiatry on the one hand and medical ethics on the other hand. And I was involved when COVID came, I was involved in developing ethics uh, developing policies rather that had ethics implications for the entire university. So I worked on the pandemic triage policy in terms of, you know, if we if we run out of a scarce resource like ventilators, how do we prioritize and who gets who gets that scarce resource? So difficult policy with obviously some difficult ethical questions. And I was working with the UC Office of the President on these policies. So these were policies that applied not just to UC Irvine, my own branch campus, but to UCLA, UCSF, really all five of the campuses that had a hospital. Up until the university announced that it was going to mandate the COVID vaccine. And when the vaccine mandate was announced, that was not a policy that had gone through our committee or that we were really consulted on. And I found that puzzling because it was clear to me that vaccine mandates would be in 2021 certainly the most controversial and also I think the most ethically fraught of the different types of issues that we were dealing with during COVID and the, the different policies that institutions were adopting. So last August, I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal because I was concerned about this policy that the university was contemplating. And the title was University Vaccine Mandates Violate Medical Ethics. And I argued there along with my co-author who's a professor professor of law at Notre Dame, that these policies were problematic because they violated the principle of informed consent, uh, a principle that's really a bulwark of 20th century 
medical ethics, first articulated in the Nuremberg Code following World War II, and then instantiated in various federal laws to protect, first of all, to protect people who are involved in medical experiments, uh, saying that you can't do a medical experiment or enroll someone in a medical experiment uh, without their without their consent, without them understanding the risks and benefits and then agreeing. Well, plus, it's not, without, it's not, it's not consent. If, if you, you know, have a five-year-old child and you tell him you're going to go X, Y, and Z, it's not a consent. You know, that it's, it's okay for a child, but, but that's right. Questions. So that's right. the, the, the cons informed consent part is a, whether the information part is accurate being presented accurately, um, contextually, um, whether it's, it's being changed as far as the information part and whether you are actually given the opportunity to give consent. Precisely. Yes. Just, just so, uh, so informed consent in the case of a child would apply to the informed consent given by parents or guardians on behalf of that child who's too young to consent because the child's too young to understand what's being asked of, of him or her. And this is a principle that not only functions in biomedical research, but also functions in the clinical setting. As, as you know, when we do something as a physician, when we propose a treatment or an intervention to a patient or for a patient, we cannot do that uh, except under very narrowly defined emergency conditions. We can't do that without getting the patient's consent. Or if the patient's in a coma and the patient can't consent, we at least have to get the consent of the next of kin. And they, they, the patient or their surrogate decision maker needs to be given information, as you said, accurate information on the risks, benefits, and alternatives to the treatment and be given the opportunity to accept or decline that proposed intervention. And this is precisely what vaccine mandates were not doing. There was the threat of if you don't comply with this mandate and get the injection of a novel vaccine that you may or may not have wanted, you could be at risk of losing your job or losing your scholarship if you're a student or not being able to attend uh, the university where you've spent maybe the last few years and are almost ready to graduate from. So this is a obviously a very severe penalty to hold over the heads of individuals. And under those circumstances, whatever consent the person gives is um, is not truly informed consent because it's done under some form of coercion mm -hmm. or distress. So uh, setting aside at that time, even setting aside the controversies on was this adequately, was this product adequately tested? Uh, are there concerns about safety or e efficacy? From the beginning, I, I had an issue with the vaccine mandates that was grounded purely in medical ethics, purely in these kinds of ethics concerns about informed consent. The, the argument that was being put forward at that time as to why that vaccine mandates were justified is, well, maybe it won't help the individual who's getting the vaccine. Maybe they're young, healthy, and otherwise at low risk from COVID, but they have a duty to society. They have a duty to other people to get this, this sort of social solidarity argument uh, because it's going to help other people. That argument might have held some sway if we had what was called a sterilizing vaccine, a vaccine capable not only of, of lowering my risk of getting sick or dying, but also preventing me from getting infected and transmitting the virus to other people. And we knew at least people who were paying attention to the clinical trials data and the early data on the vaccines knew that these vaccines could not do that. The vaccines did not stop infection or transmission. So in my view, that social solidarity argument sort of 
fell apart. It didn't apply in the just of these particular products. May I interject one question point? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the example I've heard is that George Washington troops were not asked uh, whether they, they would take a smallpox inoculum. Uh, they had, you know, they in, used pustules and so forth from smallpox or yeah. blisters, whatever you want. Um, and, and I, I, you know, the argument, like if you are in war, you can be, have, you can be conscripted and sent off to battle and die. Yeah. Uh, there's no real question about that. Um, but I, I, I always, so I, I think there is kind of the exception that, that, you know, some, at some point you're informed consent and one way or another, whether it's informed or whether it's consent is irrelevant. If in fact, you know, space aliens, uh, drop down, uh, Terminator style, whatever, uh, or maybe have the wrong movie, but you know, if there's a big enough emergency, I think yeah. there's, there's a potential, you know, solidarity war, like, um, co cohesion and coalescence. Um, but that's not, I, I think that, you know, some of those arguments where we have to do this, we're all in this together. But I think there was it was a, a little bit of bait and switch in, in terms of severity. And I think that was yeah. a little bit clouded from the populace. Yeah, that, that, I, th I think that's precisely right. And, you know, you mentioned soldiers you know, and the smallpox vaccine. Actually, at the time when I published that article, and we mentioned this in the article, soldiers in the U.S. military had more rights to decline the vaccine then uh, than people at the university under a vaccine mandate. And the reason was at that time, at least, all of the available products were authorized only under emergency use. And there was a precedent setting case that said, even soldiers in the army who relinquished some rights when it comes to informed consent by conscript, being conscripted in the army, uh, still retain the right to decline participation in a medical experiment. And under our own federal government's definition, all the emergency use products were still experimental. And so the military was not able to mandate the vaccine until later when the Pfizer community product was given provisional full authorization. And so funny enough that soldiers who usually have fewer rights in this regard actually had more rights than students at the University of California, where I was at when the university and mind first- you, A lot of them will, will have to take certain vaccines. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it's an anthrax vaccine or, or like an immunoglobulin or whatever, but for certain battle uh, theaters, which is a funny use of the term theater, um, they will not be asked. They'll be given, I don't know, say yellow fever vaccine or whatever for going to Southeast right. Asia. And so there are certain times where they'll, they'll take vaccines um, and or, you know, special uh, antidote type arrangements uh, for certain situations because they're going to be in battle. Um, but I think those are for, you know, life threatening situations. And 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 when those those people are genuinely at risk themselves. Yeah, th that's right. That was another issue with these vaccine mandates is that we failed to take into account the very significant age gradient with COVID. So the two two most basic epidemiological facts about COVID. Number one, the infection fatality rate, which is 0.2%. That's been replicated many times over. And we knew that by April of 2020 after the Santa Clara study. And so the initial numbers of terrifying numbers of three to 4% of people who get infected are going to die that the World Health Organization initially announced turned out to be uh, off by orders of magnitude. So how Very many were, Mike, you said, you said well, well, I think the ultimate number wasn't like point 
was, was 0.04% or something like that? Well, it depends on the age. Overall, it was 0.2%, I think is the overall infection fatality rate. Right. But uh, the vast majority of those, and this is the second most important epidemiological fact about COVID, the vast, vast majority of those are in individuals over the age of 70. Right. So if you look at under the age of 50, your your risk of dying from COVID is similar yeah, no, I, no, to your risk of dying. I, I agree with you. They, they, were, they were literally, um, if you went from like a, a you know a healthy seven year old to an unhealthy seventy seven year old, uh, there were literally ten thousand to one hundred thousand time um, different right. in, in risk. Precisely, yeah, that's right. So, so many of the people who got the vaccine were not at significant risk from COVID, and the risks of the vaccine, at least early on, were unknown. And and now there's some some risks of the vaccine that are more well characterized. But in any case, uh, there were problems with informed consent because I, I think the knowns and the unknowns were not fully disclosed to many patients who received the vaccine. That was a problem. And <clears throat> I also started to see people at the university having appropriate exemptions declined kind of arbitrarily, whether religious exemptions or uh, medical exemptions. And so I, I ended up getting to the point where I, I said to myself, okay, Publishing an article in a newspaper to try to get a conversation going was important and maybe helpful. But in my position as director of medical ethics, if I see something being rolled out that I really do think is harmful, I, I felt that I, I was in a position where I needed to try to do something to actually stop that from moving forward. So I challenged this vaccine mandate in federal court. I, I filed a suit in federal court challenging it uh, under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection clause of our constitution on behalf of people like me who had already recovered from COVID and had natural infection induced immunity. I know I'm going to, I'm going to take a quick break there um, and just bring to our audience attention that I think it was 2004, 2006 that Dr. Fauci himself said uh, there was no point in ever getting a vaccine if you had the actual limbs. I mean, he was talking which swine flu or H1N1, one of those flu type things he was talking about. He said, you know, it's like, if you've had the illness, there is no point in getting the vaccine. The illness is complete coverage. And a vaccine is only one tiny protein. So you, anyway, you know, the, the, his own words. And if you go fact check this thing and go check the fact checkers, they're like, well, mostly this, mostly that. They, they can't come out and say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big vaccine guy. I love vaccines. And I've, I take, took flu shots every year, yeah. but always before you know, before the episode, before you got influenza, yeah, right. and not afterwards, and and, yeah. and there's a lot of you know, there's this ADE, you know, antibody dependent enhancement mm -hmm. potentially from taking something after the fact. You've already had the yep. immune system aggravated, and then you're rechallenging it with a, with a that's right, um, an antigen that that is you know from which you've already you know seen. So, but you're going to have a reaction to it. Um, so, anyway, I apologize for that little break. No, I mean that's 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 the very important point, precisely the point I was trying to make in my lawsuit. And uh, we know that vaccines, what vaccines try to do is to get as close as they can to mimicking the immunity conferred by infection, but without making you sick. That's the whole concept behind how, you know, vaccine, what is a vaccine? How does it, how does it work? Um, but we don't have cases of vaccines for viruses in the past uh, or in the present where the vaccine um, immunity was superior to uh, post-infectious natural immunity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it should have been clear from the beginning, just on a theoretical level, that this was the case. Now it's very clear based on research that the immunity conferred by 
prior infection is not perfect, but it's con considerably better than vaccine immunity. It lasts longer. Yeah, it has more breadth against new it's variants. It's pretty obvious stuff. And, and, and the, the vaunted um, Dr. Fauci himself said so. I mean, yeah. so we have, we have that to, to, to work on. Yeah. So, um, so what happened? It's very sweet. You know, if, if you want to go sideways with your employer, one good way to do that is to sue them in federal court. <laughs> so they acted very quickly. Um, they declined my medical exemption twice. Uh, and then they placed me on investigatory leave followed by a month later by unpaid suspension, followed a month after that, uh, they, they, they fired me. So, you know, they moved to get rid of me basically as quickly as so could. So last, last December, I, I, I lost my job at the university over this issue. Okay. So let me ask you a few questions around that. Um, at which point did you know that was going to happen? I mean, did you kind of read the, the tea leaves knowing, you know, that one, you know, the, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk give him a glass of milk, he's going to want a place to nap. Did you kind of see, see the sequence of things that would happen in this escalation? Or uh, were you hoping that, you know, the voice of reason would allow you some protection yeah. or tenure or whatever? Well, you know, I was because I was, for my part, I was willing to be quite flexible and willing to allow the university, you know, at least while the case was being heard and while we were waiting for the judge to make a ruling, allow the university to save face by finding a way to accommodate me. So for example, there were some faculty members who declined. Lost Dr. Cariotti. Um, there we go. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. I usually have a pretty good internet connection. It could have been, it could have been Gavin Newsom. Yeah, yeah. He he got he got wind of. <laughs> so, um, let me just back up a little bit. You can cut that. Um, so I was willing to be flexible and to work with the university so that they wouldn't have to abandon their policy prior to the judge making a ruling, but also so that they could. Um, they could allow me to continue as a faculty member. And they, they accommodated other faculty members by allowing them to work from home, for example. And about two thirds of my work at that time was uh, mm -hmm. by telemedicine or, or remote, could have been done from home. So I was willing to go part-time and work from mm -hmm. home. I was willing to even take an unpaid sabbatical for a year or two until the pandemic is over. Um, but they were in no mood to to sort of work with me at that point and moved as, as swiftly as they could to fire me. Right. So so the question remains, um, did you so you were hoping there'd be some accommodation, but were you prepared? You know, what is it? Plan for the best, uh, hope for the best, plan for the yeah. worst? Yeah, I, I certainly I certainly knew when I filed the lawsuit that that was most likely going to be the beginning of the end for me at, at UCI. And that would be probably hard for me to continue there regardless of what happened with, with the lawsuit. So, so I had a, I had a sense certainly um, that things were going to play out that way. And certainly after they placed me on unpaid suspension, they did say, well, okay, if you, if you get the jab, you know, while you're on leave, then you can come back. Right. Mm -hmm. So, if I get the jab, then my, I no longer have standing. The lawsuit in court disappears. They're happy because, you know, I, I haven't challenged them. 
and uh, and they were willing to to take me back. At least that's what they what they said. So mm-hmm. certainly by that point, I, I realized that no, if I continue to pursue down this line, and if I continue to refuse vaccination at the university, they're not going to accommodate me. They're they're going to fire me. Okay. So, so side was, side question, if I may. Um, so was the lawsuit for for Aaron Dr. Aaron Cariati, or was it for use you know use University of California students in general employees and so forth both a and that's a and b part b is where has the lawsuit gone yeah so the lawsuit would have directly impacted everyone at the University of California if my argument had prevailed in court then the university would be forced to change their policy to at least accommodate natural immunity and so it was me and people similarly situated. So I mm-hmm. didn't file the lawsuit just for me. I filed it because I thought this policy needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing good nurses getting fired. I'm seeing students getting forced out. Right. Um, the, 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 the so-called frontline workers for whom everyone yeah. had a significant debt uh, was cast aside the following year. Precisely. And also it would have set a precedent in federal court uh, that this issue had to be considered in terms of other vaccine mandates. So mm-hmm. it potentially would have changed many of the institutional vaccine mandates around the country, because if my argument is correct, then uh, there was a constitutional right that was being violated by a policy like this. And if that's the case, presumably other policies that are doing the same thing are also violating constitutional rights of citizens. So the, the case was pretty high stakes. And what ended up happening in the case, uh, unfortunately, is that the, the ruling went in the direction of the university. And the reason it did had to do with the level of scrutiny that the court applied to the policy. So just a, a little bit of a legal sidebar. If the court had agreed that there was a constitutional right at stake uh, to refuse a vaccine, then they would have had to apply either an intermediate or a strict level of judicial scrutiny to the policy. And that would have meant we could actually get into the fact-finding and evidential arguments about natural immunity. Mm -hmm. Had we done that, the science was clearly on my side. The CDC came around, you know, earlier this year to say we shouldn't distinguish between vaccinated and unvaccinated because natural immunity is robust and because the vaccines don't prevent infection and transmission. It was precisely my argument in in the case a year ago. So, uh, but my case wasn't allowed to actually get into the science. And the reason is what they said is all this policy has to do is is pass what's called a rational basis review, which means the university had a public health reason to to initiate the policy and that's all they had to demonstrate. Meaning they didn't have to show that the policy actually achieved its intended Hmm. purpose. They didn't have to show that the benefits outweighed the harms. They didn't have to show it was narrowly tailored. We didn't have to get into any. What if they had decided that uh, Asian students or back in speaking of Nuremberg and so mm-hmm. forth, that uh, Jewish students presented a health um, problem? I mean, Ger- Germany actually did this. You know, they, yes, right. they, they characterized a lot of their initial laws under health uh, standards. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's well known. Um, but, you know, the Jews were, were metaphorically uh, labeled vermin and so forth. And then a lot of it was uh, kind of cross categorized, you know, so question i mean maybe i'm not sure you can answer this question but is it any statute that that the university uh, comes up with if they're you know working on you know presumed good faith that's uh, a standard belief they're allowed to get away with that 
So judicial precedent would not allow them to get away from that because judicial precedent would have said under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, you cannot discriminate based on race. And also there's this thing in federal law called Title IX that prohibits race-based discrimination. So a policy like that would have been struck down either under Title IX or under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. I was trying to make an analogous case, but what the court said, unfortunately, is we have this precedent from 1905, a case called Jacobson v. Massachusetts, where the Supreme Court upheld the city of Boston's uh, mandate for uh, actually a smallpox vaccine. But what I've what I've argued, and I, I wrote about this on my Substack newsletter, is that if you look at the 1905 Jacobson case, number one, the penalty that was applied in that case was very modest. It was a $5 fine, which adjusted for inflation would be about $160 today. Mm-hmm. So I would have happily paid $160 fine uh, if that allowed me to decline the COVID vaccine when I didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's obviously a less severe penalty than losing my job and losing my academic career. So that was I think that's one issue with the Jacobson precedent. It's, it's actually a very modest precedent. The other issue with the Jacobson precedent is that it's been misapplied before. And the most notorious case where it was misapplied is a 1927 uh, eugenics case, actually speaking of your example of you know racial discrimination back in the 1920s. But half the states in the U.S. had laws permitting the, involunt- the, the state to involuntarily sterilize individuals that were mentally incapacitated uh, or disabled in some way. Mm-hmm. And a young woman named Carrie Buck challenged this law. She was diagnosed with congenital feeble-mindedness, which was a very loose category back then, just as it yeah. would be today. I think, I think I actually have that myself. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm suffering from it, at least as I age. Well, I mean- um, it's sort so of late, late in the day, I get that. <laughs> uh, so the case went to the Supreme Court, and 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 to to our shame, the Supreme Court upheld the state of Virginia's law permitting the involuntary sterilization of Carrie Buck, and it cited Jacobson. It said that the principle that allowed for forced vaccination is quote wide enough to cover the cutting of the fallopian tubes, and then the infamous line written by. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., famous American jurist, mm-hmm. in the majority opinion, said three generation of three generations of imbeciles are enough. Period. So that's a that's a case that's obviously you know on the wall of shame, like Dred mm-hmm. Scott and other yep. things that you know we we are certainly not proud of. So, so what I was arguing is, look, the court has never articulated a meaningful limit to that Jacobson precedent, and clearly that precedent can be and has been in the past misapplied. So surely that precedent can't mean just any sort of a vaccine mandate, you know, matter, no matter how harmful or egregious right. would be, you know, would pass judicial muster. Now, uh, the court didn't buy that argument and cited the Jacobson precedent and basically said, you know, the state or in this case, even private institutions have a right to mandate vaccines. And I, I think that's a problematic case precedent that um, that should require more judicial scrutiny and should allow us to look at the scientific evidence and talk about things like potential benefits and potential harms. Hmm. All right. So I'm going to segue to the next phase of um, Dr. Cariotti's uh, life and adventure. And I also want to reserve some time. I, I, I'm 
hoping that we can stay on for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. It's up to you. Um, if you have I'm good. Key. I have, um, I have to go to the bank at 4 p.m. So I'm good for about 45 minutes from right. here. So yeah. I'd like to leave time for, um, at any rate. So, so the question would be, uh, what, um, what happened? What have yeah. you done? How did you take it? Uh, how, how did your own mental equilibrium uh, work out? Um, where are you now and, and what's the fight? So initially back in December, um, I was casting about just how to put food on the table for my wife and five kids. And where was I going to get health insurance in January? So I quickly connected with an old colleague, actually my former residency training director, who's leaving the university around the same time. And we set up a private practice so I could at least see my patients. And then I started working with some independent uh, think tanks some research institutes that gave me some support. So the Ethics and Public Policy Center in DC and the Brownstone Institute uh, and another uh, institute here in California kind of came, came to my rescue to allow me to continue doing some of my research and my writing um, and my, my public speaking on public health and public policy related issues. So um, it was disoriented, disorienting at first, but I, I, I'm grateful that I have landed on my feet in 2022 and, you know, been able to continue supporting my family and sort of make a career in uh, medicine and in my work in bioethics outside of the university. I, I do miss the teaching of students, supervision of residents. That's, that's mm -hmm. kind of the one thing that I haven't really been able to re replicate this year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, outside of the university, but the other work I was doing, I've been able to continue and in some cases even, even expand. So that that's good. I, I have seen a lot of your work. Um, I, I was fortunate to have a piece in Brownstone recently myself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I know some other writers of Brownstone, um, and it's a, you know, it's a high bar, um, Mr. Tucker is um, an excellent editor. Yes, and uh, it looks looks for quality, uh, so that's a, a feather in your cap. Um, well, I'm I'm happy that that you've uh, landed somewhat on your feet. Um, where where do things stand in California? I know you you've you know yeah. you you write, and I I I, rec I you know will refer people to your Substack, um, and you've written on the California law, which I find like uh, horrifyingly eye-opening. Yeah. Uh, we want to discuss that. I don't know, remember the number of the law, but what what's going on with that and where do things stand? Yeah, uh, thank, thanks for asking about that because, you, you know, you, you sort of were asking previously, where does the fight stand now? And so I'll talk about two other lawsuits that I'm involved with. I'll start with the California one. And this is a lawsuit challenging a law that was recently passed in California called Assembly Bill uh, 2098, AB 2098, which I went up to Sacramento and testified against when it was being heard in the Senate Health Committee. Um, the committee didn't take my advice and passed the law anyway and went to the, went to the floor. The legislature passed it and the governor signed it. So it's set to go into effect in January. But along with five other physicians in California, we filed a lawsuit challenging this law on constitutional grounds in federal court, arguing that it violates doctors' First Amendment free speech rights, and also violates the, our equal protection under the 14th Amendment. I think it also, you know, I wonder if, I mean, it, it would seem to violate patients' 
rights as yeah, well. Yeah, that's that's right. So yeah, maybe just briefly, let me explain what the law says and what, what it does. It basically says that the Medical Board of California is empowered to discipline any physician who, in the course of advising patients, gives advice that contradicts the government's preferred you know, public health measures or public health narrative, specifically on COVID. Where, where, where could that possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So it's a kind of gag order on physicians. And what I, what I tell people is, look, I, I don't care where you are politically or ideologically left, right, liberal, conservative. I don't know of any person in California that wants to go to their physician and ask their physician a question about COVID and have the physician read from a script written by the California Department of Public Health. They want their physician's actual opinion on whatever it might be, masks, uh, the mm-hmm. vaccines, other COVID treatments, other interventions. And, uh, you know, how could they possibly trust their physician if their physician is not actually able to give an honest answer and say what they think because they're literally afraid of losing their medical license. Now, the patient might decline your recommendation or, or might be wary of your opinion. Oh, fine, no problem. They can go seek a second opinion. They can they can go on the website and see what the state of California has to say about this intervention. Um, but I don't know of anyone who would, would want their doctor to feel like they couldn't be honest with their patients. So this is, while we're arguing that this is a violation of the free speech rights of physicians, which is true, and it's a good legal argument, it's problematic, not primarily because, you know, physicians won't be able to say what they're thinking in this regard, but it's problematic because it's going to harm the doctor-patient relationship and patients won't be able to get accurate ans- answers to their Yeah, And I, I, I actually, you know, I, I think in the, in the short and long run, uh, patients will suffer because they're not given the optionality yeah, uh, of, precisely. of treatments that, that fall outside of what the government wants. I mean, the government is not a neutral party for health decisions. More and more, there are government you know, insurers, you know, there's always been mm-hmm. for a long time for the last uh, 80 years or so, there's been um, um, Medicaid and well, I, I, so Medicaid is like 60 years old and Medicare, you know, goes back a little bit further, but there is a government interest in in paying uh, for certain types of, of medicine and, and God, God forbid, almost literally God forbid, um, you know, they might have a, a stake in deciding, you know, whether doctors can talk about um, you know, PSA before, um, age 50, you know, yeah. or, yeah, or certain, you know, because, you know, they, they, they don't necessarily want to pay out, uh, and, and, and not, not just that, but they might have other interests that, you know, certain people might not be worthy for one reason or another based on their politics or their hair, you know, hairstyle or whatever, um, to, to, to receive types of treatments. And it could be a government law. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it seems to me that that's, you know, pretty much precisely what um, our friends over in, in uh, you know, 1930s Germany were, were perpetrating, unless I'm wrong. No, you're exactly right. So what happened in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, even prior to the Nazis coming to power, uh, is that German medicine uh, went sideways. And they did so because they, there was a shift in German medical ethics from a traditional Hippocratic ethic that said, my primary responsibility, my fiduciary duty, is to the individual sick patient in front of me. Mm. And then so the tr- traditional Hippocratic norms of I need to tr- do what I can to help and heal this particular patient, mm-hmm. and I need to do what I can to minimize harm to this patient, and I, I can't use this patient instrumentally for some other purpose, even if it's a good one, right? Mm-hmm. 
what happened in Germany was this metaphor took over starting in the 1920s, that German medicine and German physicians' primary responsibility was to the social organism, to mm -hmm. the health of society as yeah. a whole, to the, yeah. the Volk, right? The German people right. who could be healthy or sick. And on that metaphor, if you have part of the body politic that is a quote unquote cancer, because you know this mm -hmm. individual is disabled or a drain on the economic resources or what, well, what does a physician do with a cancer? He carves it out and gets rid of it to mm -hmm. improve the health of the whole. Well, <clears throat> so what happened was the, the duty to the patient shifted to a duty to society. And then when a corrupt regime took over with a corrupt social program, mm -hmm. medicine became totally corrupted because yeah, its allegiance it's, was, it's was to the state program. I, I, I know this. I mean, I remember reading this, but it's, it's somewhat ironic because, you know, people kind of think Germany, oh, they start a bunch of wars, you know, so forth. But, but Germany was the, the center of, of intellect and, and That's right. kind of like the, the post-Renaissance renaissance of science. Um, and they're, I guess, sort of, I mean, I, I think they're the inventors of, of what we have as the medical tradition right now, medical schools um, kind of graded and, and discussed uh, procedures advancing along the way. Um, the research university system in the United States is modeled off the German research university of the late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah, and specifically so, in, in medicine, they were the strongest. That's right. And, and it's just kind of like, you can that's see right. how things, like you call it sideways, <laughs> which is generous because I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's going to hell. Um, off a cliff. Yeah, that's yeah, probably a better metaphor. I mean, I, yeah. I'd be happy, like in those cartoons, you know, that the, they, they run off the cliff, they go sideways. I and mean, that, that's kind of cool. <laughs> when you down, and they realize there's, there's no support. So there's nothing under my the feet. only thing worse than going sideways is, is yeah. not when that stops. Uh, so I think you're generous in that regard. Um, so, you know, you, you bring up, um, for, for me anyway, because uh, I, I was looking at some of your other readings, it's writings, uh, there were readings to me when I was reading them um, uh, about where medical schools are going and the Hippocratic Oath. I, I, uh, this guy, Hippocrates, he was Greek and he was a while ago. So, you know, we don't pay attention to old, old, old people. And, um, and he was a white guy, I imagine. Um, yeah, very passe. Right? So I, when I went to medical school, there was uh, a professor of pharmacology, Louis Lasagna, and a memorable name, but he's a great guy. Um, and uh, rest of soul. And, and uh, he, he made an uh, amendment to the Hippocratic Oath, which kind of pervaded medical schools a little bit. And now there's a, yet another uh, oath that is, yeah. I don't know. And, and I think it's verging on what you're saying. I, I assume you're familiar with it. I don't, you know, this is maybe another day, another topic. Uh, if I could ever get you back on, I would love that. Um, but, I, you know, we're going to be running towards our, our end zone here in the next uh, seven or eight minutes. Um, but uh, what are your what what are your what, what are your perceptions um, or our perceptions about um, uh, what's going on medically uh, yeah. in, in education? So unfortunately, and, and, that, and the, those oaths we take. Yeah. So let let's start with the oaths because this is a trend that's actually been going on for decades. Where you know some medical schools, their oath was literally written by like the med school class of 1972 or something like this and mm -hmm. others they tweak them every year and they they sort of make them up as they go along and you know you may think the oath of hippocrates is anachronistic but um 
it, it's got a lot going for it. First of all, longevity, it guided medicine for the better part of 2000 years. And second of all, it's very concrete so that you can know when you're fulfilling the oath and you, you can know that, you know, when you're, when you're not fulfilling the oath and the oath has some things that you can't do, right? Like it talks about sexual relationships with a patient or with the patient's members of the patient's household. You can't do that. It has to do with the power dynamics and the, the, the need you know, for patients to be able to trust the physician uh, in, in terms of the physical exam, you know, you have to disrobe, you have to allow the doctor into intimate aspects of your life when you give a history. And so given that power dynamic, if a doctor uses that to seduce a patient, it's going to be problematic and harmful. Uh, the, the oath says doctors shouldn't kill their patients. You know, it's, it's very, very clear uh, prohibition against euthanasia. Whereas the modern oaths are kind of vague and aspirational and they're sort of sort of i will always in every way serve my patient and serve society well how do you know if you're fulfilling that and how do you know if you're violating that right. you don't and so the the oath ends up being kind of an empty cipher it sounds grandiose and nice when you stand up at the white coat ceremony or at graduation yeah. and recite this thing um but and and some of the turns that we've seen in the oath uh, are pre precise. I think maybe you were you were getting at this with the spaghetti or lasagna or whatever the guy's name is, right? That that it's it's the oath start articulating a duty to a social program or to society, right? And it, they're they're couched in terms of social justice, which depending on how it's understood, maybe a good thing, maybe not a good thing, doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the physician's job is to treat the sick. And to mm -hmm. and take care of the patient who presents mm -hmm. to him or her for treatment. And qua physician, that's that's all that he or she needs to do, right? As a citizen, you can pursue other social programs, you know, that you believe are worthy. Uh, but you cannot use, you should not use medicine to advance those aims. You shouldn't be, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to advance a particular political agenda, you, you shouldn't speak as a physician in any way that would suggest right. that you're speaking on behalf of the profession as a whole. I think this, this is a terrible pollution in a sense. Um, you know, the example I've often used is, you know, you go to the car mechanic and, you, you know, you have a tire or carburetor, or whatever. And, 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 you know, in, instead, you know, he, he decides that your car should not be on the road. You know, it's, it's right. the wrong color. <laughs> um, maybe, you know, he doesn't believe in tires or, or, you know, you should really be, you know, using a bicycle. Yeah. I mean, this is not actually that far-fetched. I mean, Oxford, uh, England uh, has a, a law out um, to do that, basically not to be the car mechanic, but to, to dictate when yeah. you drive, how many times you can leave your house uh, and so forth. And, and uh, you know, for anything that we have for liberty, um, I mean, now there are always constraints. I mean, I can't drive infinitely. I have a car and I, I can drive when I want and so forth, but there are constraints. Uh, I need to sleep now and then um, certain, you know, roads cost money and cars and, you know, whatever I, I need to keep it maintained. I need to keep it registered. So I don't have infinite capabilities, yeah. but I don't necessarily think that, you know, aside from pricing mechanisms and a few statutes that I can't drive on the wrong side of the road, that the state should really be that much involved in it. But, you know, people, people do what people do. And, and to a certain extent, uh, you know, I think the people in government you know, like governing. You know, so it's kind of like you're running up against, uh, you know, people. There's the old expression, you know, if you wrestle with a pig, 
um, you get dirty and the pig loves it. Um, and I, I'm not calling governmental people pigs, but you know, they like governing that, that is, this yeah, is their, right. this is their, their, you know, strength. And, and we might like treating patients, um, and, and doing that in what I see with, with the obligation you mentioned to the patient and trying to get that patient's car himself, that is, is an automotive self back on the road in, in as fit as fashion as you can come up with. And it's not for you to judge, you know, where he's going to be driving that. If he happens to be, you know, I mean, we have, I've literally over the years treated all kinds of criminals yep. and uh, people that most likely would be recidivists as soon as I fix them. Um, and it's not for me to say, oh my God, you are a criminal. I'm going to, why would I fix your gallbladder? If I do that, you're just going to go back and criminalize. Yeah. Um, I, my job is to fix the gallbladder or, That's right. you know, medicate this and that and give him cholesterol pills so he can be a criminal as long as he possibly can, <laughs> you know, with, with, with clean art, cleaner arteries than he would be had I not given him that. But that's, it, it, that's the internal ethic of medicine. That, those are the Hippocratic norms that say, you know, my job is not to mete out criminal justice. That's the job of, of the court system. And I may think they're imperfect and that, that, you know, this guy should be punished more than he has been or more than he is. But as a physician, my job is always and only to help and heal him and to, to give him the same excellent medical care that I would give to anyone else you know, in his shoes. I, I might not like this guy. Uh, I might not approve of what he's done with his life. But as a physician, I have to orient my art and my craft always toward the health and healing of, of the patient. So that, that's a perfect example of the, the framework that physicians need to be operating under, and that we cannot instrumentalize medicine for other purposes, even if we think they're good purposes, you know, meeting out, <laughs> you know, uh, punishment to a criminal. No, that's not the job of it's the not your job. physician. Establishing racial justice. Well, in, in your ordinary life, yes, try right. to do yeah. that, but go, go don't vote, instrumentalize vote medicine to try to I agree. advance so I another I, social program. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you um, have the last word. Um, I'm going to have one very last word after that. Um, but, you know, I, I'd be happy and honored to have you back again, but yeah. maybe you can summarize um, what, you, I don't know, what are the lessons learned and what, what is your message um, for listeners? So, yeah, so I, I'm working on one other free speech case, which we didn't have time to talk about. Um, but maybe next time I come on, I can tell folks about that. But I, I think the first thing that I would say is, um, that censorship is incomplete medicine, which is why free speech of, of doctors and patients and people talking about public health policies is so important now to foreclose on the possibility of debate uh, will stall medical and scientific progress. And that's one of the problems with this law in California that we talked about. So scientists and physicians need to be always open to new data always ready to um, articulate their reasons for doing things based upon evidence and a kind of authoritarian, this is what this is what I say, or this is what the state says, and therefore everyone has to go along with it, is ultimately going to be harmful to medicine as a whole and to patients. So my final word is we need to uphold that sort of classic doctrine of medical ethics articulated in Nuremberg of free and informed consent out of respect for patients. And that free and informed consent requires a climate in which doctors and patients can freely speak to one another and dissenting opinions that go against a prevailing narrative can be 
voiced. And uh, so those are both issues that I think for medicine and more generally for society as a whole are really important. And, and that's where I'm placing my focus these days in terms of my public policy work. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, before you go, do you want to mention the book you have coming out? Oh, yeah. That? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I published a book this year called The New Abnormal. The subtitle is The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And it's about not just what happened to us during COVID, but why, where did this new model of managing a pandemic that involved things like lockdowns and vaccine mandates, where did it come from? And more importantly, uh, the book is primarily looking toward the future. So there's a little bit of retrospective of the last three years, but it's also looking at, okay, where, where's this infrastructure that was rolled out during the pandemic going to go next? What are the next steps in this process? And what are the ways that I, I think freedoms are going to be harmed by the, what I call the biomedical security state. So the book's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, other online uh, bookstores. You can download it on ebook, like the Kindle. You can listen to it on audiobook. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I will, we'll put links up to it. Great. And, uh, comments and so forth. I'm going to give my, my own little tiny, tiny promotional. I have a um, book out. Um, it's going to be published in Brazil in the um, next few weeks. It's overturning. Congratulations. Thank you. So the, the Portuguese version is published by a major publisher in, in Brazil um, within the next uh, two, two, uh, two, three months, I think. Maybe sooner so there'll be bookstores there. But it's overturning Zeke. It's about the last great pandemic that you never, that kind of disappeared. Never one ever heard about it. The, the, the subtitle is The Pandemic That Never Was. Yeah. Um, and this book literally helps to do that, overturn Zika, because a lot of people are still working in fear from the last pandemic. We don't think about it as much here, but it, throughout the tropics, there's you know billions of people and you know hundreds of millions of young women, childbearing age, who think they have to stay inside uh, for months at a time, uh, you know, whenever they might be pregnant, which is you know a good fraction of their young lives. Yeah. And, and slathering on insect repellent or keeping themselves covered, you know, in hot, 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 hot weather, when in fact Zika microcephaly disappeared. It was only that one occurrence. And there's been no, no explanation. So that's my little um, uh, that's my little chew toy that's been keeping me busy a lot during the last couple of years. Um, anyway, so thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you can stay on for briefly, uh, but I'm going to let you go. Uh, let everyone else say goodbye to us. Uh, thank you so much. And if you have questions, um, you know, or would like to have questions for a second session, uh, please let us know. And have a great uh, day. Thanks. Bye bye.